you'll want to get out your message outline, have that to follow along. We are once again in Jeremiah, starting at chapter 7, verse 30, and we're going to read it as we go through it. It's long, and as is typical with Jeremiah, it's hard. Um, I shared with our Sunday school class this morning that uh, in a month we hit Advent, and we're going to take a break uh, from Jeremiah and spend Christmas with the Apostle John. So we're going to spend all of Advent in John chapter 1, and uh, so you'll get a break, but uh, Jeremiah will come back in January. Um, So uh, before we dive into this, uh, hopefully you found Jeremiah 7. We'll start at verse 30. We're going to go through chapter 8, verse 17, and, uh, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as always, this is your word, and as always, we desperately need it. We need to know that we can't follow Christ on our own, in our own strength, our own power, our own wisdom. We need to know that our own resources are far too meager for such a spiritual task. We need to know that our sin can be so great that we're in desperate need of a Savior. Thank you that Jeremiah is a prophetic book that exposes our sin and drives us to Christ. Help us to hear it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. And so we pray, speak to us through your word this morning. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. According to a survey by the American Institute of Architects, 64% of the architecture firms are reporting an increased interest in outdoor living spaces, places for adults to relax and kids to play. People say they would like a luxurious outdoor world right in their own backyard. So they can escape their everyday lives and hang out as a family and spend time outside while staying at home. At least that's what people say they want. But there's one problem. Because the evidence shows that for all their good intentions, most families don't actually spend very much time in their backyards. A 2012 book called Life at Home in the 21st Century revealed the results of an in-depth study of middle-class Los Angeles families. Researchers from US, uh, UCLA recorded hours of footage while carefully documenting how families actually spent their time. And according to their research, children average fewer than 40 minutes a week in their backyards. Adults logged less than 15 minutes a week in their backyards. Now, all of these families benefited from sunny Southern California weather. They had nice porch furniture, trampolines. Many had pools. They just didn't use them. And the researchers noted a profound disconnect between belief and action. Most families told the researchers that they were using their backyards a lot. But their observations proved otherwise. 
one of the researchers noted, rather than use their outdoor retreats, people retreat by turning on a screen, whether TV, computer, video game, or smartphone. But people don't like this image of their lives, so they don't acknowledge it. Now, that study was in 2012, and so I think uh, in the last years since then, my guess is things haven't gotten any better. Instead, families perpetuate the illusion of spending time outside because that's the ideal, but it's not the reality. So what does this have to do with Jeremiah? Quite a bit, I think. See, all along, the people of Judah are telling Jeremiah they've got it, he's got it all wrong. He doesn't understand. They're telling Jeremiah, Jeremiah, we're actually pretty good. And for some odd reason, you just can't see it. <coughs> Since we're God's people, we do God's things. We obey God's law. We follow God's commandments. It all seems very clear to us we don't understand what you're talking about. We're not the bad people here. You want bad people, go to Assyria. Now those guys, they're wicked hard. See, the men of Judah have Boston accents. Who knew? And, the, and those Babylonians over there, they don't look so great either. But us, we're good. Now, if you've been reading along in Jeremiah as we've moved through seven chapters, you know that's complete nonsense. <coughs> they have perpetuated the illusion that they're faithful people. And while they don't have backyards, they do have the temple in their backyard. And they say they love to go to the temple to worship God. Except they don't. We go to the temple all the time. We love to worship God. And the researchers are checking it. And they're like, no, nobody's showing up. It's kind of the same thing. Just about 2,500 years later, <coughs> they're spending a lot of money to keep up the trappings of worship. They just don't worship. There's a profound disconnect between belief and action. And so Jeremiah tells them, not only are you wrong, you're lying because you know you are wrong. You're trying to deceive others, but you end up deceiving yourselves. Your claims to be godly are merely a delusion. And so I'm going to pull back the veil from your eyes and show you what your reality actually looks like. And you're probably not going to like it. <coughs> now, placing yourself in the hands of the prophet Jeremiah, I think is kind of like getting a ride from a friend who learned how to drive as a New York cabbie. You know, once you're in the car with a crazy driver, the only thing you can do is just grab on and pray for God's mercy. And I think when we come to Jeremiah, we get much the same reaction. It's time to just grab on and pray for God's mercy. And nowhere is this more true than in this text. Jeremiah's sermon on the valley of slaughter. 
The end of chapter 7 through the beginning of chapter 8 is a horrible passage. If we didn't preach through, straight through books, we would never preach this text. It describes horrible actions and contains horrible images. It is the low point of Jeremiah's book. They are doing great evil, and they're going to have to pay great consequences, and they will reap what they sow, and they don't even realize that it's ultimately unwanted. Unwanted. So we start at chapter 7, verse 30. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Tophet because there is no room elsewhere. And the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs, and they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, which they have sought and worshipped, and they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. That's about as tough as it gets. And the way this passage begins is bad enough. It says, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight. They've set detestable things in the house that's called by my name. They have taken idols made out of stone and wood and placed them in the temple of the living God. I mean, you can almost hear him saying, well, you know, if one God is good, two is better. And three is better yet. And they're kind of hedging their bets. They're putting their trust in God, but they're also trusting in Baal and anyone else they could think of. And of course, trusting in God plus any other God is not trusting in God at all. The gospel is Christ plus nothing. To start adding to the gospel is not to improve it, but to destroy it. And when the people of Judah brought their idols into the temple, they were defiling it and profaning it and making it unsuitable for the worship of the one true God. What they did is an abomination in God's sight. Worshiping extra gods doesn't enhance worship. It makes worship impossible. And if that wasn't bad enough, the other thing they did was even worse. Verse 31. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, 
to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. The high places of biblical times are not always very high. This particular high place is down in a valley. It's an inaccessible rocky ravine south and west of the city of Jerusalem. And a high place is a shrine, sort of a raised platform built out of stones for the purpose of worship. And in Jeremiah 7, the high place is called a tophet. Tophet is not the name of a god, uh, but it means fireplace. It's not hard to see why that name was appropriate for this place. Tophet is a place where the people of Judah took their sons and their daughters and cast them into the flames. And the false priests would beat drums so loud that you couldn't hear your children scream. Child sacrifice was practiced in the ancient Near East. Places such as Cyprus, Sardinia, Sicily, Tyre. Archaeologists have uncovered the remains of hundreds and hundreds of children. The biggest uh, place, and they're all called Tophets now, even though this one particular place had that name, was discovered at Carthage, apparently sacrificed to Baal. But child sacrifice, sadly, has a long history. All the way back in Leviticus 18, the children of Israel had been warned not to sacrifice their children to Molech. It's an offense punishable by death. Molech is the god of the Ammonites. But like a bad penny, he keeps turning up in Israel. Ahaz, king of Israel, sacrificed his own son in 2 Kings 16. The same thing happened in King Manasseh's day, where children are sacrificed to the gods of Canaan. And when King Josiah uh, reformed temple worship in Jerusalem, which happened just before this. So the end of King Josiah's reign is sort of the beginning of Jeremiah as a prophet. One of the first things he did was tear down the Tophet and turn it into a garbage dump. But not long after his death, this horrible ritual starts up again. And the Greek word Gehenna, which means hell, comes from the Hebrew word Gehenim, the valley of Hinnom. And Jeremiah announces that the day would come when the valley of Hinnom would become a cemetery far too small for all the people who need burial after the Babylonian invasion. In fact, the Babylonian army would plunder the tombs. And the bones of all their great leaders and kings and priests and prophets are just going to be chucked out of the tombs and scattered across the ground. <coughs> We're going to be desecrated like so many of the gods they worship. Gehenna will become a garbage dump again. And the body of the Jerusalem elites will be the garbage. End of verse 2. It says, They will not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Remember, he's talking to God's people. He's not talking to enemies. He's not talking to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, people who, who say they don't know God. He's talking to God's people, and they're going to end up as manure in a garbage dump. And most of the people who even survive the siege will be carried off to Babylon. The land will become desolate. It starts to make sense when you start reading Ezra and Nehemiah, and they come back and they say, wow, this place is really bad. Now you have an understanding of just how bad it is. But even this doesn't solve the problem. 
this issue of child sacrifice will come up several more times in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah explains later on these sacrifices are offered to both Baal and Moloch. In Jeremiah 32, which we're not going to get to until like June, they built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. You know, there's little need to sort of press home the horror of the imagery in this passage. The Bible never hides the hard stuff, but sort of forces us to look at it. But you have to understand, this is describing a real fire, a literal holocaust. Down in this valley, almost within sight of the temple of the Lord, the people of God are committing their children to the flames. Now, this past week, I went over this passage with my students at RTS, and I asked of my students who had the youngest child, and one of my students had a two-year-old. And so I asked him if he could, and he just cut me off. He said, no, stop. Don't even go there. I can't even imagine such a thing. And I'm guessing that most of you would have the same reaction. What possible justification could they have had for such unspeakable sacrifices? To understand this passage, you have to recognize these people think they're doing what God wants them to do. Very likely, as far as we know, these parents loved their children. They had the same natural feelings of care and protection that we have. They would recoil at the thought of harming their kids. They're not committing atrocities for the sake of committing atrocities. They carried out child sacrifice as an act of misguided devotion. These sacrifices of these children they thought was a religious act. They were killing their children out of the best of intentions. They thought this is what God wanted them to do in order to atone for their sins. This is a theme that occurs throughout Jeremiah. False gods are harsh taskmasters. The one living and true God is the only God who actually loves his people. Other gods may promise to save you, but they're going to tear your heart out in the process. It also serves as a reminder to us that not everything done in God's name is pleasing to God. Not everything done out of zeal for God is acceptable to God. The people of Judah love themselves more than they love their kids. They're trying to buy their own salvation at the expense of their children. And that's why God takes great pains to make it clear that what they're doing was not pleasing to him. In fact, they're doing the opposite of what he wants them to do. It is something when God says that what they're doing, end of verse 31, I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. When you're doing something that even God says is unthinkable, then you have fallen very, very far. Now, there's obviously a modern parallel to this. And this is not Sanctity of Life Sunday, and this is not a Sanctity of Life sermon. But it is hard to miss the similarities to the abortion-on-demand industry of postmodern America. 
And it's easy to think of the people who uh, are in the business of providing abortions as barbarians, but that's not going to win any of them to Christ. Jeremiah teaches us that all sin, including this abortion, is a spiritual problem, ultimately, rooted in the modern idolatries of comfort, materialism, success, and affluence that we are doing for ourselves at the expense of our children. And we could eventually win this battle politically and lose the war spiritually. So what are the consequences? Well, Romans 6.23 reminds us for the wages of sin is death. And the rest of this passage reeks of death. The valley of Ben-Hinnom, of the sons of Hinnom, will become the valley of slaughter. The people of Judah will be slaughtered in the very place where they slaughtered their children. One commentator said that what was once their sanctuary would become their cemetery. They have chosen death over life, and God will give them what they have chosen. Verse 32. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Tophet because there is no room elsewhere. Jeremiah prophesies death without dignity. There's no room left to perform a decent burial, which is a sign of God's curse even after death. The corpses dumped in the valley will become bait for scavengers since no one's going to be left to chase away the vultures or the hyenas. The punishment fits the crime. These leaders didn't cherish the bodies of their own children, so their own bodies are going to be treated like fertilizer. They've worshipped the celestial bodies, so uh, they're going to have their bodies exposed to the sun, moon, and stars. And it will be clearer than ever that those gods can't save you and that the wages of sin is death. In fact, it's going to be so bad and so hard, he says, that even the people left alive are going to long for death. In Jeremiah 8, verse 3, death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains. And there's one more form of death mentioned in this passage, and it's the death of marriage. What happens in a society when parents violate their sacred trust to nurture their children? Verse 34, I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. I think that's one of the saddest verses in Jeremiah. It's a prophecy of God's judgment on the family. Joyful families produce joyful weddings. And in a society where parents sacrifice their own children, the family is doomed. If this is true, then the postmodern West is in big trouble. Given what's happening to families in our society, it's little wonder that marriages are on the decline or that young people are afraid to get married. Even people who are engaged and long to get married and want to get married are scared of it. I do the counseling, and I have heard it over and over again, this fear of what I'm about to enter. I want it. I think it's a good thing, but it scares the daylights out of me. Some of that's healthy, um, but that's relatively new in the last 40 years. And not only is their behavior unwanted by God, 
God says it's unnatural. Look at verses 4 through 7. He says it's unnatural. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, when men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the rules of the Lord. So he's concluded his sermon on the Valley of Slaughter. Jeremiah confronts the people with more sins. And this passage begins with a question that's so easy to answer. The Lord doesn't even wait for a response. Verse 4, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, when men fall, do they not rise again? It's a no-brainer. Of course, people get up when they fall down. That's just common sense. I mean, watch a toddler. Little kids are always falling down. And parents spend a great deal of time saying, get up, you're fine. At least we did. So much so, it became our unofficial family motto. It's 35, I still say that. But toddlers always do. They get up as many times as they fall down. And that's why Jeremiah is so amazed by the people of Judah. They have fallen down in their sins, and they're not getting back up. And the problem isn't that they can't get back up. The problem is they refuse. They won't get back up. And it amazes Jeremiah because it's just so unnatural. When people fall down, they get up. So why are the people of Jerusalem still lying in the dust? And Jeremiah uses the word turn or its equivalent six times in these verses. The people of Jerusalem have wandered far from God and they won't come home. They had turned away, but they won't return. He says they're perpetual backsliders. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, people who fall away or drift away from God. Most people don't realize it's actually a Bible word. They haven't learned from their spiritual mistakes. They have fallen and they would not get up. So Jeremiah, speaking for God, offers this assessment. Verse 6, I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, what have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. It's a failure of repentance. The people ought to get up. They ought to come back to God. They ought to say, what have we done? And Jeremiah compares them to horses. War horses usually wear blinders so they won't be frightened by the horrible sights of battle. They just put their heads down and charge. Each pursues his own course, paying no attention to where he's going, just rushing headlong into the fray. There's few things more terrifying than a massed cavalry charge. And what he's saying is the people of Jerusalem aren't just wandering into sin. They are galloping into sin. They are charging into sin. That's why Christians need to be repentant people. We have to be as repentant as we are sinful. If one of the marks of the ungodly is refusing to repent for sin, one of the marks of the Christian should be regular repentance for sin. 
I mean, the main difference between believers and unbelievers is not that believers don't sin and unbelievers do. No, everybody sins. The difference lies in how we deal with our sin. The Christian is called to live a life of repentance. This is Reformation Sunday. We open up with a mighty fortress is our God, which is a great hymn, but it's Reformation Sunday. It's Martin Luther, 95 theses on the wall. What's theses number one? The life of the Christian is a life of regular repentance. That's a paraphrase. The life of the Christian is a life of repentance. That's the first thing. We're to live a life of repentance. When we fall down into sin, we get back up. We don't stay down. If we wander away from God, we don't stay away. We come back. Christians return after they have turned away. They carry their sin back to God and ask Him to forgive their sins for the sake of Jesus Christ. And these people are refusing to do that. They know better. These are supposed to be God's people. And they refuse to do that because they thought they were good. They thought they were right. They thought they were wise. And in reality, they weren't any of those things. They were the definition of being unwise. Unwise, verses 8 through 12. How can you say, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace. When there is no peace. That's the second time we've gotten that verse. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When the people of God don't know the law of God, the reality is professional theologians usually deserve some of the blame. When denominations become theologically liberal, it almost always starts in the seminaries. All the more reason to pray for biblically faithful seminaries like RTS. True, the people of Jerusalem were willful in their disobedience, deliberate in their ignorance, and yet this is mainly because their spiritual leaders are negligent. Verse 8, how can you say, we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Behold, the lying pen of the scribes made it into a lie. When Paul wrote Timothy in 2 Timothy, he told them, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The scribes of Jerusalem did the opposite. They mishandled the scripture. They're wrongly dividing the word of truth. They distorted the scripture to their own destruction. Something's gone wrong. And it's apparent from the scribes saying, we are wise. You know, whenever someone boasts about how wise they are, it's a sure sign that they're not. Wise people don't trust their own wisdom. True wisdom exercises the humility of the Christian mind. But these men wrote with lying pens. They're tampering with the word of God. They're involved in a cover-up of biblical truth. The problem is not with the scripture. 
The problem is how they're using it. So how exactly are they misusing the Scripture? There's a problem with their motivation and their content. The problem with their motivation is simply greed. Middle of verse 10. From the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. These are like the original televangelists. They're in the ministry for the money and the glory. And the wrong motivation of the scribes influences their teaching. Verse 11, they've healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That verse sounds familiar because it appeared verbatim in Jeremiah 6.14. The scribes of Jerusalem deny that God is going to judge sin. I mean, these people need a heart transplant, and these guys are coming around with Band-Aids and lollipops. One reason they wrongly divide the word of truth is because they don't take God seriously. More than anything else, failing to take God seriously is the problem of the contemporary church. We trivialize the holiness of God, so we end up with a trivial view of sin. We trivialize the majesty of God, and we end up with trivial worship. We trivialize the truth of God, so we end up with a trivial grasp of his word. We trivialize the judgment of God, so we end up with a trivial appreciation of the atonement of Christ. The modern American church, our God, is too trivial. We used to look at liberal theologians who were the ones who trivialized God and said, peace, peace. And they're the ones saying, God's not going to judge sin, at least not ours. But now the evangelical church has been taken over by this lesser deity. Too many ministers offer a kinder, gentler God. He's everything everybody ever wanted in God, only less. Other evangelicals have sold out for success and recognition. There's a few people who've been trying to point that out for a long time. We lost two giants of the evangelical world this week. One you may have known, the other you probably don't. Most of you haven't heard of John McKay. He, he died this week. Dr. McKay was an Old Testament professor at the Free Church College of Edinburgh. And you may not know nor cared, but you've been listening to him for two months. Because Dr. McKay wrote the most thorough commentary on Jeremiah, which both Frank and I have been using in preparing this sermon series. This is volume one. The other man who died this week is Eugene Peterson, the longtime pastor of Bel Air Presbyterian Church in Maryland. Pastor Pete not only went on to teach at Regent College in Vancouver and translated the message, paraphrase, of the Bible, he was probably the foremost writer on pastoral ministry in my lifetime. And he was a persistent critic of American evangelicalism. In many ways, he was our Jeremiah. This is his book on Jeremiah called Run With the Horses. Let me give you an example of Eugene Peterson's critique of us. This is not the world out there. This is us. American pastors are abandoning their posts left and right at an alarming rate. Oh, they're not leaving their churches and getting other jobs. 
Congregations still pay their salaries. Their names remain on the church stationery, and they continue to appear in pulpits on Sundays, but they're abandoning their posts and their calling and have gone whoring after other gods. What they do with their time under the guise of pastoral ministry hasn't the remotest connection with what the church's pastors have done for most of 20 centuries. A few of us are angry about it. We are angry because we've been deserted. Most of my colleagues disappeared when the work started. They talk of images and statistics. They drop names. They discuss influence and status. Matters of God and the soul and scripture are not grist for their mills. The pastors of America have metamorphed into a company of shopkeepers. And the shops they keep are churches. They are preoccupied with the shopkeepers' concerns. How to keep the customers happy. How to lure customers away from the competitor down the street. How to package the goods so the customers will lay out more money. And some of them are very good shopkeepers. They attract a lot of customers, pull in great sums of money, and develop splendid reputations. Yet it is still shopkeeping. Religious shopkeeping, to be sure, but shopkeeping all the same. The biblical fact is that there are no successful churches. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. And the Holy Spirit gathers them and does his work in them. And in these communities of sinners, one of the sinners is called pastor and given a designated responsibility in the community. And the pastor's responsibility is to keep the community attentive to God. And it is that responsibility which is being abandoned in spades. Eugene Peterson wrote those words over 30 years ago. They could have been written by Jeremiah. Our passage ends with Jeremiah telling them, it's not going to work out. You have hard things coming your way. Those who wrongly handle the word of truth will be punished for their sins. And appropriately enough, they're going to fall down and stay there. Their crops will fail. They will become utterly unfruitful. Verses 13 to 17. Unfruitful. He says, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Why do we sit still? Gather together. Let us go into the fortified cities and perish there. For the Lord our God has doomed us to perish, and has given us poisoned water to drink, because we have sinned against the Lord. We look for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. At the sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. He's talking about the Babylonian invaders. These verses very quickly blend three voices. God's voice of judgment, the people's voice of despair, the prophet's voice of anguish. They contemplate the sure ruin of what was once a great nation. God declares the fields are going to be ruined, the cities destroyed, the people slain and take captive. It's going to be like drinking poison or experience an earthquake or being attacked by venomous snakes. So how do they respond? Instead of turning to the Lord, they flee to walled cities. The cry of despair will come up. Actually, we'll see it next week. Verse 19, is the Lord not in Zion? When everything goes wrong, they finally look up and say, where's, where's God? Why did he allow this to happen? 
happened because they were disobedient and unfaithful to the covenant. The false prophets made a wrong diagnosis, preached the wrong remedy, and the wounds are still open. And judgment can't be escaped, and it ends with verse 17. But as I wrote you earlier this week, in Jeremiah, there's always a sliver of hope. And we find it here. You have to listen carefully. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares the Lord. Where's the sliver of hope? These are Hebrews. They should know their own history. Now, when we read about snakes, most of us think, please God, no snakes. And the picture of poisonous snakes slithering all over Jerusalem is frightening. And people have a natural dread of snakes. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, when Satan used a serpent to tempt Adam and Eve. When God cursed the serpent, Satan's always biting at the heels of humanity. And sometimes God permits Satan to carry out his divine judgment against sin. And you can't charm such snakes. But these people should know, we've done snakes before. Israel's history is a notable place for snakes. And we are reminded of an incident in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, where God had sent snakes before. And he sent a plague of snakes upon the Israelites to punish them for sin. He's done this before. Now, 10 years ago, I preached on that passage, Numbers 21. Some of you might remember what was finally called the snake sermon. Here's the situation. People have sinned and God sent snakes. They're being bitten by these deadly snakes and they're dying. So Moses prays for them. And God responds, Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. <coughs> so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Notice the bronze serpent is lifted up for those who got bitten by the snakes. God sent the snakes because the people had sinned. God put up the bronze snake because the people who had sinned needed to be saved. It's sin that put the bronze snake on the pole. The bronze snake is lifted up for everyone who had been bitten and everyone who looked at the serpent on the pole would live. And there's no time limit for the cure. Some may have looked at the bronze snake as soon as they felt the sting of the bite. Some may looked at the bronze snake as they saw their legs and arms beginning to swell. Some may have waited until they were about to lose their minds before they looked. But the fact is, whenever they looked, they lived. And some may have thought it was foolishness to look at a bronze snake on a pole. Why doesn't God just take the snakes away? Why doesn't God just heal us outright? This whole snake on a pole thing is stupid. And they died. Centuries later, that healing look at Moses' bronze snake became the subject of Jesus' illustration of faith to a man named Nicodemus. And in their conversation, Jesus brought up the snake. And he said in John 3, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And like the snake, Jesus would be 
lifted up on the cross, bearing the curse for our sin. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then he wrote Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And like those who simply looked at the bronze serpent and lived, anyone who looks to Christ and believes in him shall have eternal life. It's an amazing cure for the deadly sting of sin. Sin is killing us. But God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin and put him on a pole. And throughout the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, God is pleading for us to look to Jesus. And when we look to Christ on the cross, we shall be saved. Placing our faith in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross provides salvation for our souls and forgiveness for our sins. These stories in Numbers 21 and Jeremiah 8 and John 3 are not so much about snakes as they are about sinners in need of a Savior, people who need to be healed of sin, people like us. And there's a reference here to the story of when the people of God are being bitten by snakes, and Moses raises that symbolic bronze snake so that by looking at it, something outside of themselves, would they be healed? And Jesus is saying, just like they looked at that bronze snake, you have to look at something outside of yourselves. And there is life when you look at the cross of Christ. Jesus didn't come to tidy up the old system. He came to change it. And he came to change us dramatically. Jesus loves us too much to leave us the way we are. He wants to transform us. And the Lord makes the way of salvation clear by believing we might have life in his name. Whenever we see snakes in the Bible, we should be reminded the snakes can lead you to death or they can lead you to life. And Jesus says, just as Moses raised the serpent, so the Son of Man is lifted up, that those who believe in him might have life. There is life for a look at the cross of Christ. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we confess to you that we're too full of ourselves, too often think that we're right to quickly excuse our sin, too slowly to turn back to you. Forgive us for our lack of faith, Forgive us for being full of our own fears. Continue your work in each of us this year as we live with the prophet Jeremiah, as we see what he sees, as we hear what he hears. Teach us to respond with a renewed confidence in your word and an ever-increasing trust that you know what you're doing in our lives, even if we can't figure it out. And so draw us ever closer to your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. God bless you. Thanks for being here.
We'll see you next week.